Hi there, and welcome to the Nerds of Business podcast. My name's Darren Moffat. I'm a director at WebBuzz, the growth marketing agency, and I'm your host. It's great to have you with us. If you're new to this podcast, our vision is to make entrepreneurs happier by solving the key challenges that all businesses must overcome. In this series, we're exploring mindset, and in particular, the mindset of the very elite, those disruptive entrepreneurs who are reimagining the world in which we all live. So far, in the previous episodes, we've looked at how top entrepreneurs use resilience and creativity to power a winning mindset and smash competitors. But there's a strong argument that it all starts with a key interpersonal trait, confidence. When you think about it, it's impossible to imagine the achievements of famous entrepreneurs without it. Whether it's Tesla, Facebook, Virgin, Amazon, Uber, or Airbnb, the founders of these companies all possess a nuclear level of confidence. It's the bedrock from which they launch and scale such iconic brands. And it's also the gateway to other attributes that investors seek in leadership teams, such as a willingness to break the established rules and even the courage to be disliked. For our opening story today, we've got something really quite exotic. We delve into the world of gastronomy and hot cuisine to reveal an intoxicating tale of confidence, passion and innovation. The year is 1984, when a young chef by the name of Feyrun Adria joins the staff of little-known restaurant El Bulli. The eatery is located in the Catalonia region of Spain, overlooking the stunning Costa Brava coastline and was named after the beloved French bulldogs of its original founder. Awarded a Michelin star back in the 70s, the restaurant is more than a decade past its prime when the new chef takes sole control of the kitchen in 1987. But Feyrun Adria is no ordinary cook. He soon emerges as a fearless innovator in both gastronomy and in business. A master of classical French cooking techniques, Adria begins to radically break the conventions of the form. His new recipes defy description and soon become famous. Dishes such as pine nut marshmallows, rose-scented mozzarella and seaweed rock oysters attract critical acclaim. He begins to pioneer the use of a groundbreaking technique that goes on to be known as molecular gastronomy. Writer and food critic Anthony Bourdain describes him as the Jimi Hendrix of pastry chefs. And just three short years after taking charge in 1990, the restaurant is finally awarded a second Michelin star. But it's in the business of the restaurant game where Adria dreams up his most striking innovations. Going against the established orthodoxy of the entire global hospitality industry, he announces that El Bulli will open to the public for just six months of the year. Henceforth, the restaurant accommodates a mere 8,000 diners annually. And to fuel the demand even further, he decrees that all reservations for the limited trading season must be booked on a single day. 
The effect is immediate and profound. The restaurant turns away literally millions of customers every year, gaining priceless free publicity for its brand. The average cost of a meal at El Bulli, if you can get in, skyrockets to 325 US dollars. Yet, in spite of all this, from the year 2000, El Bulli is hemorrhaging millions in losses every year. And even more shocking is that it doesn't matter. By this stage, Faroon Adria has become so confident in his abilities as an entrepreneur that he breaks the cardinal rule of restaurants everywhere profitability. Instead, he innovates a new business model. He creates a series of branded product lines such as books, lectures, and unique ingredients that go on to sell like hotcakes around the world. In this model, the actual restaurant functions as a lost leader in support of the other more scalable and profitable parts of the business. The strategy pays off, and between 2000 and 2010, Restaurant Magazine judges El Bulli to be the number one restaurant in the world a record five times. But by 2011, it's time for a change. After an astonishing 27 years in the kitchen, Adria announces that the restaurant is to close. In yet another break with tradition, he transforms the site into a creativity centre for chefs, architects, philosophers and designers. Although food lovers mourn the loss of their favourite restaurant, the legacy of El Bulli lives on. It's a worthy end to a remarkable journey built on Adria's confidence, clarity of vision and his insatiable appetite for breaking the established rules. Now, I hope you enjoyed that story as much as I did. I've actually been looking for the opportunity to run a restaurant case study for ages uh, because when I was at university, I spent several years working as a cook. And at one point, I was actually cooking up to 300 steaks per night to order. True story. Although I'm definitely no Gordon Ramsay, I have worked in commercial kitchens and I know the restaurant game. It's generally a low-margin industry with very predictable business models, which makes what Faroon Adria achieved all the more remarkable. From a marketing perspective, he was able to manufacture extreme demand in what is otherwise a highly commoditized market. There are probably thousands of restaurants in Catalonia alone. Sure, his food was amazing, but a good product can only take you so far. His idea to shut for half the year and then insist that all bookings for the trading season be made in just one day will be recognisable to experienced marketers as a canny mix of scarcity and time-limited offer. But to attempt such a feat, let alone pull it off, takes buckets of self-belief. If you're running a business or planning to become a disruptive entrepreneur yourself, how can you harness the power of confidence to write your own rules and forge an irresistible path to market domination. I love data. I love kind of looking through the data. You need to have systems, you need to have structure. You're going to get chopped to pieces. Enthusiasm is unstoppable. We kind of hit a point where we were like, we need another leader. Surround yourself with people who are smarter than you and richer than you.
This is Nerds of Business. We'll start the show in a minute, but first, a word from our sponsor. Hi everyone, it's your host, Darren here, with a special announcement. We've launched a new website for the show at nerdsofbusiness.com. You can find all the episodes, transcriptions and information on our guests at this new address. So come and take a look at nerdsofbusiness.com. And while you're there, sign up to our newsletter for early access to unreleased content and special offers that we'll be releasing real soon. It's the best place to totally nerd out. So the title of today's episode and the problem we're trying to solve is how entrepreneurs use confidence to bend the rules and supercharge profits. It's an exciting show today and we've got some truly inspiring guests. Up soon you'll hear from a business psychologist who shares an incredible technique actually called power posing and a Stanford graduate and tech leader who shares her origin story. And our feature interview today is a real gem. We speak with a young Indigenous entrepreneur who's overcome disadvantage to become a disruptor in the $3.7 billion market for veterinary services here in Australia. But first, here's just a quick reminder that if you're enjoying Nerds of Business, to please hit the subscribe button on your podcast player. It means you'll automatically receive each new episode every fortnight, and it makes it easier for us to stay in touch. On one level, confidence is such a mystery. For those who have it in abundance, life, from the outside at least, seems easy. But for a good chunk of the population, and indeed many business owners, self-confidence is a daily battle. I wanted to find out where confidence comes from, so I turned to our mindset expert for this series, Stephanie Thompson. Stephanie is a qualified psychologist and business coach based in Sydney, Australia, with over 25 years experience helping executive leaders and entrepreneurs to optimise their mindset and performance. She's the founder of her practice, Insight Matters, and she's regularly in the media appearing on the ABC, Channel 9, The Financial Review, and more. I began by asking her to deconstruct confidence, and she goes on to explain why a thick skin is important in an entrepreneur, but also why overconfidence is a danger for founders and leadership teams. Some of it might be inborn. Yep. Some of it is nurture in early life. A lot of it, though, is learning just from exposure. Okay. And we tend to have a, uh, this notion that confidence should come before a thing. So, well, oh, I, I'm not confident enough to do this thing. I'll wait till I'm more confident and then I'll do this thing. But in reality, most of the time as an adult, confidence comes after the fact, not before. Oh, so okay. I do this thing. I realized I survived. It went quite well. And now I'm considerably more confident. Yeah. So it's really, you improve it by doing. Yes. Yeah. Okay, great. And, you know, there are loads of stories um, in recent years, but also um, in decades past about disruptive entrepreneurs who've got a a really thick skin, you know, they've really had the courage to be seriously disliked. Um, A great example is um, the guy from Uber. You know, he was uh, famously took on governments and local councils all around the world um, and um, 
and essentially won. So how unusual is this and what advantages does it give the disruptive entrepreneur with that particular attribute? The thicker skin is quite typical, I would say, and necessary in a way similar to what we were discussing about optimism, in that it's necessary for the push through, in that there will always be the negative voice, there will always be the disapproving opinion. And if somebody doesn't have that courage to persist regardless, it's just not going to happen. So you can imagine some people are more apologetic apologetic kind of characters and they might have an idea, they might be pursuing something and then somebody is offended and they criticize them and they shut it down and it's, oh, I'm, you know, I'm sorry. Yes, my bad. (laughs) Of course. Yes, silly me. And it stops in its tracks. Yeah. Whereas the thicker skinned person who has some courage to absorb disapproval will persist regardless. Yeah. So Stephanie, in those entrepreneurs who uh, do have that thick skin, you know, is, is overconfidence common and what problems can that cause for leaders and the organizations they lead? It's a matter of judgment whether somebody is overconfident or not. Because, of course, to some extent, people tend to follow a confident leader. Mm -hmm. It's inspiring to be in the presence of somebody who literally inspires confidence through their own confidence. Of course, it can go too far if you're not at all sensitive to somebody else's disapproval. Um, It starts at the extreme. It starts to look a bit sociopathic as it says i don't care what you think yeah i don't care about the impact on you so as is the case for many things the extremes are where the problems tend to come in and staff will leave for one thing Uh, they may follow a confident leader to a point but if they feel that even they're not important or that the ethics of the business for example are not important well as long as i make a sale don't care who it harms yeah. Um, doesn't bother me. Let them try and sue me. Too far. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think the the real implication for this, as you've touched on, is with the people. And um, I might take that a step further. It's, it's the culture, I would imagine. That's mm. when it can really start to affect the culture of the organisation. Uh, and if you've got a, a really overconfident leader, the skin is too thick, that sets the example for staff, poor culture, bad outcomes for customers and, and stakeholders. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I think a lot of it comes down to ethics and care, actually. It's possible to have a thick skin. In fact, I've seen this in profiling people in detail. Psychometrically, I've seen people with very thick skins who still actually care. They may not perceive naturally the impact on other people, but mm. it's not that they don't care about it once it's brought to their attention. Right. Yeah, okay. Is that a relatively unusual mix? It is. Yeah. Yes. Stephanie will return later in the episode with some tips on how to improve your own confidence as a business leader, including that awesome technique called power posing. So stick around for that. I loved what Stephanie said earlier. Confidence comes from doing. This rang so true for me. I've always believed that the wider your field of experience, the more capable and confident you become, both in business and in life. This was a strong theme in the chat with my next guest. 
Rachel Newman is the founder of Flying Fox Ventures, an early-stage venture firm for angel investors based in Melbourne, Australia. Prior to that, she was the managing director of Eventbrite for Australia and New Zealand and the head of startups at Amazon Web Services, where she worked with literally thousands of entrepreneurs. She's also served as the chair of Startup Oz, which is Australia's national startup advocacy and lobbying group. So she's a highly respected leader in the startup ecosystem who knows exactly what it takes to be a disruptive entrepreneur. Listen to Rachel as she shares her story, and I think you'll be struck by the diversity of life experience and also how this has been a direct import into the success she's enjoyed so far. Yeah, and I think that um, when I look back at my career, this is not something that I planned or could have predicted, right? And I think that's important for folks to realize that um, for many of us, it is around serendipity. It's around saying yes to lots of weird opportunities and being open to chops and changes that ends up uh, kind of creating these types of lives. There are lots of young folks who ask me like, oh, how do I get a career in investing? It's like, oh, well, like there are, this is a choose your own adventure, right? So I'm happy to share, um, you know, my experience and then just, you know, actual results may vary. And I actually believe that it is the many twists and turns that my life has taken um, that has given me some of that interdisciplinary thinking and that kind of wider, um, broader global mindset that has, I think, put me in a good position um, to be an early stage investor. And I'm going to go back and this is where I'll age myself because you already called me old, Darren. Um, (laughs) but I'm going to go back to 99 to 2003. And in those four years, uh, young Rachel was an undergrad student at Stanford in the Bay area in California. And those are really important years to be in the Bay area because in between 99 and 03 is when you had the dot cup dot com boom and then of course the bubble busted and so that gave me a front row seat to something where first of all all of my classmates at one point left school they you know stanford doesn't call dropout they call it stopping out half of my classmates left and they went on to start companies to join early companies to become multi-millionaires and on paper they actually were for a while there are some fast cars um And so I was like, wow, this is so amazing. It's so amazing to be in this environment and have this ecosystem where you can have brilliant ideas. And like young people, you know, 19, 20 year olds can have ideas, can be, you know, pair up with other incredibly talented people, get capital injected into them and then start running for the races. Um, And then we know how this story ended that most of those companies went bust. A lot of my classmates came back to school, um, but, Rather than it turned me off, I just thought, this is so exciting. It is so exciting. It just felt like this great democratization that anyone with an idea, with hustle, with, you know, the ability to persuade another, a few other fools to come along for the ride could really make something. And so uh, I think that that that's really important part of my DNA having witnessed that and having been surrounded by so many entrepreneurial people. Um, immediately after Stanford, I actually went into an investment role. I was uh, at a fund called New Schools Venture Fund, which is an impact investing fund focused on public education, but it was founded by John Doerr, who's one of the legends of investing from Kleiner Perkins. Um, and so I just had this incredible opportunity to, you know, learn from masters of investing. I got to sit in at, um, you know, in Kleiner meetings. I had a a short stint where I was assisting some partners at Sequoia. So just my early uh, 
work experience, I got to witness um, some pretty great investing in the Bay Area. Um, and then I had the fun part. The fun part was, you know, I, in addition to getting an MBA, I had a master's in public health. I worked in refugee camps. I, you know, ended up a management consultant for my sins. Um, and then this magic moment happened when I was, I was back and forth between Australia um, for love. And then I was in the Bay Area and I met the founders of Eventbrite. And there aren't that many things that I know how to do well at this point, and still I think is the case, but there are one or two things that I do know how to do very well. And that thing is how to get growth out of under, deeply understanding customer problems and create a differentiated customer experiences and unlock growth. And I met the founders of Eventbrite um, at a party actually. And I was telling them what I did with this management consulting firm with large companies. And they said, do you think that's something you could do here? And I said, I'd love to try. And that began my Eventbrite experience. And Eventbrite is one of those very typical startup experiences where the role you come in at is never the role you leave. And in a few years, I had done everything from run a customer support team to open an office in Nashville, um, experiment with a bunch of new consumer offerings, open Australia, become the managing director. Um, and that company just experienced, you know, pretty tremendous growth during my time there. So that's where I kind of cut my teeth as a startup operator um, and then have been very fortunate to invest and advise in some amazing companies since. I had a wonderful time at Amazon Web Services working with startups there. And now I'm just super excited to be doing my own thing. And like I said, putting fuel on the fire of other amazing founders. Well, what a wonderful story. And um, what I like so much about that is a, two, a couple of things I'd just sort of like to pluck out of that and highlight. One is the, uh, the contrasting experience. You know, you've, you've, you've had, you haven't just stuck to the one lane. You've obviously, you've had a, a rich experience of life. You know, as you mentioned, you worked in refugee camps. Um, you know, and I find that uh, a lot of people or founders, uh, successful founders in particular, have that very rich life experience you know they can draw on lots of different ways of thinking you know lots of different ideas um, some are, and, and import ideas that work in different markets or different contexts into their particular product and, and the other thing I like about it is the serendipity going to a party um, you know I, I think that's wonderful and you know that's so often the case isn't it you know it's just that sort of chance thing that changes life on a dime it is. And I think you you made such a great point around the import, because, for example, when I worked in refugee camps, what I did there was I had pitched to the UN High Commission of Refugees a model of, of kind of designing and scaling a system of health clinics in the camps that I had pulled completely from the model that we use in investing in schools um, at that time. Um, it was charter schools and there were companies called CMOs, charter management organizations. And I looked at that model for school administration and I said, you know, this can work in a clinical setting in refugee camps. And so I think that is like one of my very few superpowers. Um, and I think then consulting helped to uh, hone that skill, which is what can I learn from one place and apply it somewhere else? Try, fail, or maybe it'll work, but how to take something from a completely different context um, and bring that together. And I think that now fast forward to early stage investing, this is where you, you know, you need to have the ability to see something that doesn't exist yet. And so whether that is data points from other places in your life or crazy experiences you've had gives you both the, either like the guts or the, the conviction that you need to say, 
you know, this totally new thing could possibly work here because I've seen it work in a very different context, but I roughly have a blueprint. Um, and so that that importing thing is something that I do quite a, quite frequently. And I think that founders, that's a great advice to founders, is you don't have to reinvent every wheel every time to do something new and novel. So often something new and novel is something that is very standard with one or two extremely novel attributes. One of the common hallmarks of truly disruptive entrepreneurs is an inclination to bend or even break the established rules. Business psychologist Stephanie Thompson lifts the lid on this behaviour and explains why it's so important. Well, it can come from a bit of healthy rebellion. Okay. Or sometimes perhaps from an unhealthy entitlement. I think it tends to begin early. I see this as a trait that is apparent when somebody's young rather than something that develops later. Yeah, so it's not it's not like someone who's been generally a rule follower for most of their life then gets into their 20s, starts a business and starts breaking all kinds of rules. Like it's, it, mm. it emerges early in childhood, early teens. And, you know, what does that look like? What are some of the t- telltale signs, you know? Um, if you're looking for a, a rule breaker, a rule bending entrepreneur, like how does that manifest? How does it manifest uh, when they're young or as a... Either way, when they're a, young or, or later on? Yes, I suppose when you're young, it's just being a little bit dis, a little bit naughty. <laughs> in, in fact, that word is often used, isn't it, on a, a parent-teacher night. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Maggie is a lovely girl, but she's very disruptive in class. The yes. word disruptive. Yeah. Oh, that's that's a good point. It's, it's, the, the clue is in the heading. It's, it, it's clue is in the heading. You know, you're quite right. So it's those naughty children, those disruptive children, that may well be. You know, have have more of that psychology at that point that's going to lead to that kind of those kind of behaviours later on. Um, yes, maybe so. In in contrast to the the good girl, good boy rule follower at school. Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, this tendency to break rules, um, does this always uh, correlate with the courage to be disliked? I'd say there's a lot of overlap Mm -hmm. because rules are made by humans. Collectively, as a community, we say we think things should be this way and we feel strongly enough about it that we'll make a rule. Yeah. So if you're pushing up against that and saying, no, hey, I think it should be different. Um, there's a bravery in that. Why do you think, you know, someone that's seen a lot of top entrepreneurs up close and business leaders up close, like why is this rule-bending trait so important in a disruptive entrepreneur? I suppose it depends on the strictness of the rules and some rules are quite formal. Yeah. You know, don't don't break the law. Um, Whereas, I mean... But on the other hand, when we think of some of our biggest global uh, disruptive entrepreneurs, they they break all kinds of laws. They sort of re- remake them essentially. Yes, or exactly. seem to have amazing power to work around them. Yep. Things that would have us in handcuffs, mm. they seem to get away with. And now for our feature story. Morgan Coleman is the founder of Vets on Call. Launched in 2018, Vets on Call is disrupting the $3.7 billion market for pet health by using technology to bring vets into the homes 
of pet owners, thereby avoiding the stress and the hassle of a traditional visit to the vet clinic. As you're about to hear, Morgan has a remarkable story. A Torres Strait Islander man who grew up in Bendigo on Jaja Wurrung and Tangarung country in central Victoria, Morgan was one of the few Indigenous kids in his community. He's overcome some serious obstacles to build a thriving business, and I think you'll agree he's an inspiration to entrepreneurs everywhere. I'm really very interested about your journey into entrepreneurship. I mean, you're you're pretty young. I mean, if you don't mind me saying so, you're, I think you're 31, so that, that that's pretty young. Uh, is this your first business, Morgan, or have, uh, have you done done a business before? Well, look, I think it depends on what you classify a business um, because, you know, I've been tinkering with businesses since I was a kid. I remember um, my first business actually was that we had um, we had chickens at home and I would sell the surplus eggs to uh to the teachers at school. And um, I wanted to expand that business. So I went and bought some more chickens um, at the local livestock auctions for like, I think they were like 40 cents a chicken at the time. Um, but unknowingly bought some roosters and it wasn't long <laughs> before my customers were complaining that they had fertilized eggs hitting their frying pan. So uh, that was, <laughs> that was my first ever business. And it um, came to a pretty abrupt halt. But uh, I think this is the first business that's, you know, being something of this scale. The others have sort of been little side hustles or, you know, tinkering with different kind of problems. And how did you end up becoming the founder of a tech business like Vets on Call? I mean, what was, maybe step us through that sort of discovery process of the problem. Um, mm. You know, I think there's a good story there um, you might like to share with us. Yeah, certainly. So I think, like I said, you know, I've always had the itch to do my own business and um, as a, as a kid growing up, like I, I always had that sort of affinity towards like the, the Richard Bransons of the world and um, kind of wanted to emulate them as I grew up. But, you know, I was, I was the only Indigenous kid in my school. Um, and, you know, and I think, Whereabouts did you grow up, Morgan? Which, which part of the, the country we're we talking about? I grew up in Bendigo, which okay. um, at the time was a pretty, uh, it was one of the least multicultural um, towns in the country, I think, when I was growing up there. So um, very like predominantly Anglo-Saxon Catholic. Yeah. Uh, and I think one of the things that struck me at that time, like upon reflection as an adult, is that you know, the low expectations that we had for Indigenous kids um, and Indigenous people. And it seemed like at that time, like if you didn't succeed at sport, you just weren't going to succeed. So I think, you know, throughout my teen years, I probably set my... Um, my goal's pretty low because of that. And I do remember the moment when I thought I'm not going to be a footy player and like my whole world kind of came crashing down. Um, and so from that, I ended up actually, I was fortunate enough to get a scholarship to Melbourne university. And that was kind of a, a bit of a tipping point in where it was for me, where I thought, you know, someone that's never met me um, has never even had anything to do with me, believes in my ability to succeed. And that's sort of, what started me, like, I guess, kick-started the ambition engine within me. Mm-hmm. Um, I started working in a, in a corporate um, following graduation and I was there for four years and three were amazing. Three where, you know, I thought this is the place that I'm going to be for a long time and this is how I'll change, you know, my life and my family's life for the better. Um, and the fourth year was, was the opposite. It was probably the worst year of my life um, and I just felt completely disempowered i felt like um you know 
it was a it was a really frightening time considering that this is where I thought like this is how I'm going to change my family's life. Um, and I remember sitting there one day and I was just looking over the computers and I was feeling miserable and I'm looking around the office and I just thought to myself, you know, I'm bigger than this. This is not where I'm meant to be. And what struck me in that moment was that I needed to forge my own path. I needed to be the one that set in my destiny and it needed to be something where I felt empowered. Um, and I just knew that business was my kind of, was my place. So I also thought though, in, those, in that moment, I remember thinking, right, I'm going to go start a business. I don't know what it's going to be, but there's three criteria that it has to hit. It has to be infin- infinitely scalable. It has to be something that's got the potential to become a household name. And then thirdly, it has to be um, something that I can potentially do from anywhere. So um, tech kind of made sense because it was, you know, it's scalable, um, something disruptive that was what I was thinking around the household name um, and tech, you know, I could do from anywhere. So I think it sounds a little bit vain to say that it needed to become a household name, but the reason behind that is because it kind of goes back to when I was a teenager realizing I wasn't going to play football because in that moment, I remember thinking like, well, if I don't succeed at sport, like what other pathways are there for me to succeed? And every indigenous person you saw succeeding back then, like in the nineties and um, early two thousands, they were all sporting people. And so, you know, I wanted to be like, I wanted my business, whatever it was going to be at that time, uh, to be something that other Indigenous people could look at in the future and go, well, he did that. I was just going to say, I think if you're disrupting something, you know, you need to be prepared that you're going to piss people off. Um, People become accustomed and they become comfortable with the status quo and they also, you get powerful people or businesses in the industry that are doing exceedingly well with the status quo. And they want it to stay like that for as long as possible because it means that they just keep cashing in those checks. So if you're a disruptor to that, you need to be willing to weather the storm that they're inevitably going to throw at you. And do you have a story that maybe you can share with us, you know, like where you had some, a specific challenge, you went through a really, a bit of a tough time getting over over a certain hurdle or stage in the business. And it might be related to resistance from industry or what have you. Uh, but if you've got a specific story that p- particularly illustrates that resilience or perseverance, that, that'd that be um, really great to hear. Well, one that comes to mind is one that's actually just happened recently. Um, became aware that there was a handful of vets that were uh, disparaging me and vets on call um, on online platforms. And wow. I looked through the names. I've never, ha- I've never spoken to any of them. None of them have had anything to do with vets on call, which means that they actually know you know, they've not had any insight to how we do things. Um, and there were some pretty, how would I say, mischaracterizations of myself and, and of the business. And, you know, I think I really sort of grappled with that for a couple of days. Um, and it wasn't sort of until I spoke with my mentor about it and and he just got really excited. <laughs> he got really excited about it. He was like, you've got haters. This is great. You know, like this is the progress that you need. Um, so I think that, you know, it comes down to perception. But at the same time, like part of me at the time felt like, okay, I need to go and address these. Um, but at the what I ended up coming to was like, no, it, it's not going to matter what, you know, I say or do or anything like that. There's always going to be people that don't want to see us succeed. Yeah. Um, 
and, you know, feel threatened by what we're doing. And there's not a lot that I can do about that. And I truly believe in what we're doing and the value that we're bringing to vets and to pet owners. Um, and you know what? You can't, you can't touch me. Um, you know, it's water off a duck's back. And so I think having that kind of mindset, like it's that resilience, like that's something that you cultivate and it's something that you do at times really need to focus on. Like, is this going to let me, is this going to stop me? Is this worth stopping me? Um, and the answer inevitably for me was no. Um, but, you know, I think that I've, we've had those sorts of things throughout my life. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm so, they're not the first people to tell me that I'm an idiot or something like that, or to try and stop me. And um, they won't be the last. Um, and, well, thanks for sharing that story. That's a, that is a great example of resilience and, um, and overcoming those challenges. And to your, your last point there, that you've had those experiences in your life and you touched on it earlier, your experience in Bendigo as the only Indigenous kid, you know, in the school. Um, here's a, a nature versus nurture question for you, you know, like do you think uh, disruptive entrepreneurs are, are born that way or – or do they evolve, you know? Like, so in your case, um, do you think, you know, you always had this in you or, or was it, or, or were it the, perhaps was it uh, a mix of those formative experiences over the years that really kind of, you know, pushed you in this direction? This is something that I know sounds weird, but I've given quite a lot of thought to this. So um, I think there's some things that you are born with, you know, like I was born with ambition. Yep. Um, you know, the fact that I grew up with a single mum, you know, and at times we were, you know, too poor to fix the back door, like that I kind of think adds to that. But at the same time, like I could have been born into a wealthy family. I still believe that I would have been ambitious. You've just got that um, natural drive, yeah? Yeah. yeah I, I like to build things and I like to, you know, I like to succeed. I think, you know, that's something that certainly gives me validation. So um, I think that that's something that I was born with. But I think at the same time, like there are certain things that you you cultivate over your life, like that resilience that, that I spoke about, the mindset, you know, that to me really was a shift in how am I going to be more conscious of like the way that I engage with businesses and industries and um and products and services like that was a real shift in my mindset and that's what helped me create the the business that I have and the idea that I had to start it um but you know I think like you you do you cultivate resilience and I can recall uh I can recall my um careers teacher actually telling me not to apply for Melbourne University because she didn't want me to be disappointed when the offers were announced and uh, yeah, I remember her actually prior to that walking through the classroom and encouraging everyone to apply for the best universities. And then she got to me and saw that I'd put Melbourne Uni years first and um, quietly encouraged me not to. And, you know, in those moments, like you sort of, like I was, what, 17 at the time. And I remember like sitting there thinking like, does that mean I'm not as good? You yeah. know, like um, that kind of, in, in that moment, I felt like helpless. And that didn't sit well with me. Like I went home and I stewed over that. And, you know, the sort of the next day I was like, no, nah, never again. Like, and it doesn't matter what she says, I'm going to do what I want to do and I'll find a way to make it work. And that's the resilience. It's like, you know, as an entrepreneur, particularly if you're doing something that is disruptive, that's new, because 
you have to educate both sides of the market. You have to educate, you know, the people that are going to be um, your early adopters and you have to be, you have to take a lot of notes because you're convincing people to do things they've never done before. Yep. So being able to push through those no's and, and the challenges that you come up with on a day-to-day basis, you, you simply have to have resilience. If you're a business owner or leader who wants to improve your sense of self-confidence, you won't want to miss this next segment. Business psychologist Stephanie Thompson shares some incredible practical tips, including a thing called power posing. Check this out. I do. Actually, you could imagine confidence is a topic that I discuss frequently with people. It's a very, very common question is how to be more confident in certain situations or confident generally in oneself. Mm -hmm. And there are all kinds of techniques. There are lots. But a couple that come to mind is one one is the baby steps. So if we take uh, a very simple example, this is not really for an entrepreneur, but um, uh, a simple example, somebody who's not very confident talking to people, really core confidence. Mm -hmm. So we might start by saying, well, exchange a few words when you're at the checkout in the supermarket or buying a coffee. Start there. Exchange a few words. Walk away. There's your baby steps exercise. And then from there, step up, step up, step up, step up. And suddenly, you know, you're in the auditorium with a thousand people. That's probably quite some time later. But um, yes, so there's exposure therapy, essentially. Mm -hmm. Then there are techniques such as editing one's self-talk. So the inner talk that we have, if you listen in, this is normal. Everybody has chitter chatter in the mind. (laughs) Uh, almost everybody. Some people say they don't. If you listen into that chat chatter, we listen for self-admonishing kind of chatter and we edit it to be more supportive. So you sound more like an inner coach. Okay. That's a nice technique. Yeah, takes like a bit of uh, looking into for each person. And then, then there's a really fun one that's appeared in the last number of years called power posing. Have you come across that one? Power posing. No, power I haven't. Posing. What is power posing, Stephanie? It sounds it sounds intriguing. I've got no no idea what it is. Right. Well, it's to do with the fact that um, so, for example, if you were looking at a number of people across the street, you could probably gauge something about how they're feeling and how confident they are just from looking at how they move yeah. and how they stand. And that's because our body, our structure, our posture, and our movement reflects how we feel. But the interesting thing is that it's a feedback loop that goes both ways. So how we use our body and our posture and our expressions even also in turn affect how we feel. So if we curl ourselves up into a frightened little fetus-like ball, we tend to feel a little bit down and scared and not the best. Power posing takes our physiology intentionally in a confident direction. So um, it's things like uh, intentionally holding a posture for a few minutes that is like you just won a race Mm. or, um, uh, yes, it's tall and broad is the thing. Tall and broad, yeah. Tall and broad. So it's, yes, it's holding these strong, confident postures and there's research showing that it produces a more uh, articulate and confident impression on others wow so and oh, that's, that's an extreme that's, synopsis extreme brief summary of power posing I, I love that that's fascinating and how much of your work you know uh, 
I would imagine confident what you just said. Confidence is a fairly big part of what you do. Um, so how much of your work gets into that that crucible point, again, between the sort of the mental side and the physiology, you know? So right here we're talking that posture um, mm-hmm. is can help with the confidence. So how often do you actually sort of help people on, you know, how they sit, how they stand and, and movement? Uh, is that, is that a, a, a fairly big part yeah. of what you do? It's a, a big love of mine, actually. The, I call it embodiment psychology. It's fascinating, and it's really a whole that's new area. Nerdy. That's, ex- that, that's <laughs> again, the nerdbot is uh, it, it's going crazy here. Embodiment psychology, that's what you call it, yes. yeah? yeah. Yes. So it's a, the psychology, yes, it's the science of embodiment, so being in one's body. Yeah. Um, because we, we're not a brain on a stick. You know, we, we think and perceive and act in the world with our entire mechanism yeah and so i do teach power posing and variations on that a lot more and more it's always a winner so the problem we set out to solve in this episode was how confidence drives entrepreneurs to bend rules and supercharge profits our mindset expert stephanie thompson revealed the psychological theory behind confidence And Rachel Newman shared her journey towards becoming a leader in the startup ecosystem. We also heard a compelling real-life story from our featured entrepreneur guest, Morgan Coleman of Vets on Call. I hope their wisdom and insights have given you some ideas to crack the code to growth in your own business. For me, there are three conclusions that we can all take from this episode. Number one, expand your field of experience. As our business psychologist Stephanie said, humans get confident by doing, and this effect seems to grow exponentially when you pursue a diverse lived experience. I loved what Rachel had to say on this and how she's able to cross-pollinate learnings from other parts of her life into ideas that generate a competitive advantage for her in business. Number two, get comfortable with being disliked. As Morgan shared in the story of Vets on Call, he knew that his disruptive model would inevitably attract some criticism from the established players. But note, it didn't worry him and it certainly didn't stop him or even slow him down. This courage to be disliked is a manifestation of the confidence that all top entrepreneurs have. So if you're a naturally sensitive person, maybe work on developing a thicker skin. And number three, Avoid the danger of overconfidence. As Stephanie said, confidence is great up to a point, but too much of it can lead to bad decision-making and poor culture. As we heard at the top of the episode in the El Bulu story, confidence in a founder creates the right conditions for innovation, not just in product development, but across the whole venture, including business model, marketing, and more. In keeping with the Spanish theme of this episode, there's a famous quote from the artist Pablo Picasso, that I think should be an inspiration to all aspiring and practicing entrepreneurs. Learn the rules like a pro, so you can break them like an artist. Learn the rules like a pro, so you can break them like an artist. I absolutely love that. It's a big call, but this might just be the defining philosophy of entrepreneurship in the digital age. Now, in case you might be getting the wrong idea, I'm not suggesting that you break the law or do anything illegal or unethical. But clearly, when it comes to building businesses and dominating markets, the meek shall not inherit the earth. Although every business is different 
and there's no such thing as a sure thing, we know that hard work, good advisors and a sound business plan all boost a company's chance of success. But if you really want to tilt the odds in your favour, a confident leader is the ultimate X factor. We're coming to the end, but before we go, it's time for our regular segment, Nerd Superpower, where a guest has to share one attribute or skill that gives them the edge in their market. Let's find out who our super nerd is today. We have another question for you, Morgan, and this is, again, one of our very famous segments here at Nerds of Business called... Nerd Superpower. Nerd Superpower. So the brief here, I think it's pretty obvious, right? We're asking you, Morgan Coleman of Vets Encore, what's your one superpower as an entrepreneur that you re- you think really gives you the edge? So uh, I'm a big fan of the X-Men series. Um, and one of my favorites, he's not a good guy, but he's the juggernaut. You know, he's unstoppable. Once he starts running, you just need to get out of the way. And I kind of see myself as a bit of a juggernaut, but a bit more nimble. That's um, nerdy. Know, <laughs> that is very nerdy, Morgan. I love that. So <laughs> you brought the X, X-Men uh, franchise into the conversation. But not only that, you're on intimate uh, terms with the juggernaut character. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So you, <laughs> you, you really relate to the juggernaut. Once, once he gets going and he builds up that momentum, he's pretty much unstoppable. And that's you, Yeah. Yeah, I think, and that's the kind of mindset you have to have. It's like if I set my mind to something, I'm going to do it because inevitably there'll be many challenges that come up and you just have to have the mindset. doesn't matter what happens. I'm going to find my way through. Well, that's uh, the crowd loves that. (laughs) You're a very popular guy here at, at Nerds of Business, Morgan. So thanks for listening to episode 28 of the Nerd to Business podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please leave a review on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It helps us climb up the ranks and become more visible to other people just like you. Remember, we want to help as many entrepreneurs and businesses as possible. If you've got a question or some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. You can engage with us at our new website, nerdsofbusiness.com. That's nerdsofbusiness.com. So feel free to reach out and say hello. I want to thank all of our guests and the team at WebBuzz for helping me put this show together. We'll be back in two weeks with our next episode, which is how to harness ambition and competitiveness to turbocharge your entrepreneurial drive. Until then, I'm your host, Darren Moffat, and I look forward to nerding out with you next time. Bye for now.